on a very special consensus. I have so much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. Consent is the gold standard. Everyone knows what's going on and everyone said yes. Hello, exactly! Open and honest communication. Mutual acceptance. Consent is... And like, you'd have to ask me like when I'm not drunk. Hello, exactly! Consent is honesty. What people agree to do. Respectful. Never optional. Sexy and required. Hello, exactly! Welcome to Consentences, where we'll be talking alternative lifestyles through individuals' experiences, navigating desire, danger, and the importance of consent. I'm Snow, and today on Consentences, I'm joined by my wife, the magnificent Ms. Marvel. Hello. Hello, and our very special guest, who is known for giving presentations and providing workshops at various uh, kinky conventions and uh, things like Kinky College in Chicago, Gwyn Bash here in Austin, and is he is also a board member for DomCon. So uh, welcome our friend Underground C. Thank you. I'm glad to be here on the show. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hello. I'm You're here, here too. too. Ah. Ta-da. <laughs> the, any of you guys wondering what an above ground sea would be like? No, that was my first thought. I mean, probably Atlantis. But this is underground sea, so good. It's good it's for the best for the concrete. <laughs> good stuff. I'm happy to have you here. <laughs> uh, so, see, before we kind of get into what we're going to be talking about today, which is going to be kind of a larger uh, kink overview. So we're going to go through several different topics that I know that you're well-versed in and are going to be able to provide some great perspective on. Before we get into that, do you think you'd be able to kind of just walk us through a little bit of what your journey has been and you know, just kind of give us your personal story of how you became engaged and involved in uh, BDSM and kink? Sure. I love to hear stories about how other people got into it, share mine. So yes, I'm all about this topic. So I have been interested in kink since as far back as I can remember. You know, my earliest memories go back to when I was about five. I remember liking the Cinderella story. You know, I felt bad for Cinderella, but I was kind of curious about her cruel stepsisters and her cruel stepmother who were mean to her. And I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> so I was just drawn to these mainstream films, mainstream stories. Um, that had these themes of BDSM in it. And I would replay them in my head. I would imagine myself in them. And so I I knew that I was a little different. I somehow instinctively knew, instinctively, instinctively. instinctively knew yeah. that I was a little different. So Cinderella in a cage, no Gus. Mm-hmm. No Gus. <laughs> oh, that's a rough one. I mean, yeah. For Gus. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, uh, depending on what you're doing with Gus. Yeah. Moving right along. So I, I would have liked to be there for the part where she gets the sleeper put on her foot also. Yeah. To be a part, uh, to be the one serving Cinderella? Or Watching it, doing it, sure, yeah. I'll, I'll take the role of the prince. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But uh, essentially being present. And so uh, yes. things in pop culture and uh, media and art were the first things that kind of got your brain going and thinking like, ooh, I, there's something different about the way I'm looking at this and how it's making me feel. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So, yeah, it came out in games I played. 
what I did with my G.I. Joe action figures and stories I wrote. And then eventually I learned there was a name for it through adult media. I'm not a big consumer of porn, but that got me interested in porn because that's where I knew I'd find little bits of BDSM. I found out that there were videos, publications that were focused specifically on kink so that I didn't have to go to Penthouse Forum and page through the stories hoping I could find one about kink. I could find magazines that were dedicated to it. Through that, I found my way to the internet. And uh, through that, I found my way to the local organized scene. About when do you think, uh, like around what age do you think you really started exploring the the scene in person, like finding events or uh, just kind of getting exposed to more more things that you were personally doing versus looking at things on the internet or finding stories uh, around when, when was that? So if you want to say in-person participation, so my age at that time was about 26. Okay. And at 25, 26, and uh, uh, yeah, my very first event ever was to go attend a fetish night at a goth club on Halloween night. And I found out about it. And I was like, oh, I want to go to this so bad, man. I wish, you know, I could go to this. But at that time, I didn't know anybody who I had shared this interest of mine with. I couldn't talk to a friend and say, hey, you want to go to this with me? And instead, I just went downtown with some friends for the regular Halloween celebration, which is this humongous parade on 6th Street, just lots and lots of people. And this humongous costume parade. Well, in that crowd, I got lost. And (laughs) not... Deliberately, sometimes people say, oh, I bet you did that on purpose. No, it just happened. <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, easy to happen. Yeah. To Luck was on my people. side. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess after a few beers, being in costume, I just shrugged and said, well, I guess I'll just go to the fetish show. Mm-hmm. And uh, being in costume, um, with my inhibitions lowered a bit, made it easy to just show up to this place by myself. That, didn't meet, that made it easy to go back the next week. And uh, then after that, I also started going to local munches. So that's how it all began. Actually, and so for our, uh, I know we're going to be getting into lots of different pieces of kink and BDSM, but whenever we use a term that maybe people aren't uh, aware of, we really like to make sure that we kind of define what that is. So you just use the word munch. Can you describe a little bit about what a munch is? So a munch is a social. Uh, social is probably a more descriptive word for it, but usually it happens where people can munch on things, and I imagine that's how the term came to be. Uh, I just heard of it as a munch and never asked, you know, how did this word come to be? That's that's my guess about how it probably came to be. Yeah, I've always wondered that, too, and I mean, I, that certainly from a logical perspective sounds right, and I think, too, uh, giving it a unique name makes it a lot easier because... And if you use now, I know if I use the word munch and the person knows what it is, then I know they know what kink and BDSM are by and large. So it's kind so of it's like specifically a kink BDSM social. Yes, social I mean to my knowledge, I mean I don't know of much other used socials, for anything else. Like there's a yes. debutante social. Sure. Maybe I don't. In my mind, that's how debutantes meet. <laughs> <laughs> and their moms bring them. So now I'm imagining a T-shirt that says "Like to Munch" with a question mark on it. Perfect. Yeah. Every episode gets its own T-shirt. So, so let's go hashtag Like to Munch. <laughs> but that would get different interpretations. I would imagine. Yeah, especially. I mean, even Wait, if. I'm sorry. What was it was like to go to a munch? Like to munch. Like to munch. Question, question mark. Right. Yeah. Uh, that that's munch is a verb that can take different meanings, and that's marvel. And I think. It's the best, right? Can we think about all of its meanings? And that's how you find out if somebody knows or not, you know? 
They're yeah. like, yeah, I like to eat. Are you a friend of munching? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly leaves it open for a lot of interpretation and entendre too. So yeah. that's not necessarily a bad thing given the community. So, <laughs> uh, and uh, just also to give a little context to um, to you, um, kind of now, uh, what specific kind of BDSM play or kink are kind of your focuses now in the community? So I am most about the mental aspects of play. Okay. And even the physical aspects are usually within that context. In other words, they're interesting because of what they represent at a mental level. Gotcha. And so my biggest thing is DS, which is dominance and submission. And there are lots of things that fall within that. And, uh, you know, then SM, and I'll talk about these terms more in a bit, is is second to that. So, yeah. Great. That that covers a lot of ground. Yeah. And I think, too, and I mean, to be clear during this conversation, this is going to be one of hopefully many times that we have C here. Uh, as, you know, we've had the opportunity to see him speak at different conventions and uh and workshops and he's somebody who is incredibly well educated about various types of kink and bdsm so uh we are going to be far from able to cover it all during this uh this one interview so we're very excited to have him to continue to come back and and talk more in depth about lots of things but as we said up front uh this is primarily going to be more of just a high level overview of a lot of things to begin to level set and uh make sure that we're all kind of on the same page around different terminology, kind of what is what is all of this, and uh, and then take it from there. So, uh, so yeah, so with that, let's kind of get started here, and let's start talking a little bit more about terminology. We just talked about munches, but, and kind of just started talking about DS and SM. So, yeah, why don't we go and start defining what those things are, starting with what is BDSM? Okay. So I'll start with some of the broadest terms that you might hear, and those are kink and BDSM. And within that, I would say kink is the broadest umbrella. Uh, and today I hear kink used more often than BDSM when people are res referring to, well, let me start by first talking about BDSM. What is BDSM? So BDSM is an acronym that spans three different acronyms. When it was first coined, the term spanned bondage and discipline. There were some terms that were being used. One was bondage and discipline. The other one was sadism and masochism or sadomasochism. And then DS was for dominance and submission. So these three terms collectively were then referred to as BDSM. So that's what originally the acronym was meant to describe. Uh, today, the use of the terms has evolved and changed a bit. So one is that not everybody is now interpreting BDSM to mean what I just said. There are some people who interpret BDSM to mean just the play aspect of dominance and submission and bondage and discipline and sadism and masochism or the types of things you might see happen at a dungeon party. So you might hear people say, hey, I am not into BDSM, but I'm into DS. And to me, at first, that was a bit surprising because DS is part of BDSM, but I came to see that they referred to BDSM as the play form of things. And when they were saying I'm into DS, they were talking about the relationship aspect of things. Like what happens after a party or in your normal everyday life and how a couple regards each other or two people involved 
in a specific play space. Like this is a time limited event that's hosted by people and here are dungeon masters versus what happens in your home and whether you keep that dynamic going or what that looks like for you. Right. So the people who say I'm into DS and are talking about wanting it as a relationship, yes, they view it that way. It's not about the play. It's about this thing that's present all the time. The two are not mutually exclusive, but that's one way I've seen the term used these days. Sure. And then kink is an umbrella term that most often I see people using to describe BDSM. But I'll admit that my sample is skewed because most often I'm talking to people who are in BDSM. But I don't see that term used as much to describe, say, swinging or poly. But some people might use kink or interpret kink to also mean those things. And at some level, especially people who are not interested in any of these might think of kink to mean anything that is outside of mainstream sexuality. So I guess what I'm saying is... So almost any, some people could be, who, who may be more uh, vanilla in their lives and potentially be, you know, cis-hetero uh, and monogamous, that could be something where it's like anything that isn't that becomes kink, depending yes. on how they're viewing it. Right. Okay. I think that's a perspective that I see sometimes. My brother kind of has that perspective. Uh, it's not just simply a question of the terms. I don't know if he's ever used the term, but uh, I guess he has. He did ask me, are you kinky? Um, <laughs> but uh, there are some people who just see all different alternative sexualities as just as one big bucket, and that's not the case. Right. And then it also encompasses fetish, which can be a play component, or it can be an arousal component, and it can be completely imaginary, and it can be a lifestyle and fetish also goes under that kink umbrella, or maybe all of this goes under a fetish umbrella. But those are two big generalized terms. I think human behavior and sexuality, they're just complex. And uh, <laughs> you don't Thanks say. for clearing that up. <laughs> and you can think of them as, you know, lots of overlapping circles or maybe even spheres. Maybe two dimensions aren't enough. Sure. And uh, so... Yeah, I mean, that's something that we often joke about between ourselves around the how interesting it would be to, because we inhabit so many of those different, you know, spheres, or when we talk about kind of the Venn diagram, like what does that overlap look like from how people uh, self-describe or uh, self-disclose around what they like and what... To make like a periodic table, to make like a yeah. cellular or like molecular structure of what that can be. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm cool. Just be, yeah, because there so are for the I show. Mean, yeah for like as many different types of you know kink or fetishes as there are, there are that many uh, probable uh, combinations of the different ways that people inhabit different communities and things that they're comfortable with and what their relationships are like with their partner or partners. So it's just interesting that there is that kind of high-level blanket that so many people think about, but then there are so many niche levels below it and just kind of like little different pockets of how people self-describe. So. Right. So I think that we can, one way we can describe people is through Venn diagrams. And I think we'd probably run out of, you know, and I said, well, maybe one dimension isn't enough. Maybe we need two dimensions. Maybe there are three dimensions. Uh and uh, that maybe we should think of them as overlapping spheres, but I think we would run out of dimensions that we could at least depict visually. Um, another way sure. to think of it is rather than thinking of it as spheres or circles that have overlaps, if we think of them as a series of 
scales or gradients. So kind of like the Kinsey scale, right? And so there, there's a whole bunch of these scales, and every person has some type of a ranking on them. Just like our Kinsey scale, you got, you know, you can. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Only, I mean, that's a term that I know that we're aware of, but I'd imagine a lot of people aren't. So Kinsey scale, so Kinsey was a research who researched sexuality back around in the 50s. And uh, he proposed that uh, there is not, the, that homosexuality and heterosexuality, it's not a binary matter. It's not that somebody's either this or that, but rather there's a continuum between the two and everybody falls somewhere on that continuum. Of zero to eight. Of zero to eight. <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember the numbers. Bless Kinsey and and where he figured out that scale. Just to throw it out there, like there is no ten on a Kinsey scale. You're working between zero and eight, so do your math on that. And at either end are a hundred percent hetero and a hundred percent homosexual on on that. And then so in the middle would be perfectly bi, perfectly bi, and the gay leaning bi or straight leaning bi, and still working within a binary, just right a gray binary, not a black white one, right. Right, and but his point was that everybody was on that spectrum somewhere, and it was unlikely that anyone would be one hundred percent to one side or the other. Uh, I mean, not that it doesn't happen. Of course, I'm sure it does. But uh, that looking at it as just that black and white was probably not logical in terms of just how we are as people and right. like what our attractions or our fetishes are or whatever that they could lean either way. Right. I think that's one of the the beliefs that I've, you know, I've come to form over time is that we can be described as a series of continuums. Absolutely. And so, so the two points are one, things occur in degrees, and then there are a lot of things that come together to collectively define what or who we are. Yeah. And so you can Assets have... Assets and liabilities. It's a continuum. Every time I've been in an interview and asked that question, like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? I'm like, those are the same thing, depending on how I'm managing them. Mm. Go on. Thank you. So, <laughs> so um, with these continuums, uh, you know, that's, you can, so sometimes, like, for instance, to give you an example to illustrate the point. So, you know, we've got the Kinsey scale. I sometimes joke about a Kinsey scale. Uh-huh. And there... The point was that first that uh, it's not just a question of somebody being dominant or submissive, but that somebody falls on a continuum. And that's not so much an original idea. So I've heard other people propose the same also. Uh, But, you know, I think you can apply that scale to different things, to whether somebody has an interest in BDSM or not. You know, that also falls on a continuum for people who must have it, to people who want to touch it, to people who could go either way depending on their partner. And so you've got all these continuums. You know, does somebody have an interest in BDSM? You know, are they a dominant or submissive? Another skill to perhaps describe that. And different skills for their interests and things. And so all those skills then collectively come together to sort of represent what that person might be like to describe that person. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, we have a, uh, on our uh, website on consentences.com, we have this huge sheet that uh, originally came from uh, Dom in the community who had passed it along to Marvel and then I took it and reworked it and made it uh, because I love me some uh, conditional formatting and drop downs and basically reworked it so that you know I think it's over 300 different types of BDSM or kink play and fetishes that specific are specific activities specific activities and it's called a limit list 
uh, a hard red zero, like, nope, this is something I would never do and would never want done to me. And all the way through, you know, a five, like, yep, like this is a deal breaker for me if this is something I can't do or have done to me as part of playing with somebody or, or with a partner. And so good way of looking at or starting to explore what you personally may or may not be into. It's a good way of learning how to talk about different activities specifically. And it's a great way to start negotiations if that's where you're at with play yourself to be able to send it to a partner to say to partner, hey, these are the things that I've looked at. Let's talk about this more. Yeah, and also too, it's it's a great way to even gain awareness of things or find out that there are actual names to different type of play. And Google's super helpful with all of that. There's going to be words you're not going to know. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't bother the only kink person you've ever met constantly. Use Google. And if you don't know still, then absolutely don't bother, but just ask the nearest kinky person in your life. Yeah, or send me that question at consensus.com. Or certainly, yeah, uh, or certainly uh, FetLife is another uh, great resource just to begin to gain understanding and begin to uh, just kind of think about what potential, you know, kinks you may be into or fetishes you might want to explore. Uh, Let's see, what are some other terms that uh, are, are common within the community? Well, uh, we can talk about the roles, a couple of other points to add to the continuums. So one is that uh, I'd like to credit Jack Ranella. He's an author and an educator who added to my perspective about the the skills that for the continuum between submission and dominance, that everybody falls somewhere on that scale. Uh, He added something to my perspective that uh, where you fall on that scale is a function of who the other person is. So, for instance, one person might fall near the dominant end of the spectrum with person A and the submissive end of the spectrum with person B. So how people connect matters. And uh, But I think that uh, I agree with that perspective. I think everybody also has something like a default position on there. So I think of it as something like a bell curve. And where the bell curve is the highest, that describes where that person is most likely to be with respect to other people. But that area under the curve can describe other places where they might fall and what the likelihood of that is. Right. So, sorry well, to get geeky on you, but... No, no. So, I mean, that actually, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I would almost kind of think of it akin to like an MBTI test, uh, which is a personality test. But uh, primarily what it's doing is just showing, you know, the preference, like overall preference, like all things being equal, that you lean to one side or another over uh, eight different facets. And so I think it would, that makes a lot of sense to me that although, you know, I may, I mean, I would consider myself pretty much dominant all the time. There are times where, you know, potentially I could lean more submissive depending on what the situation was. Um, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. It's a little harder from a switch perspective. Like, I feel like I need two points because I have two different default settings. Right. And oh. I mean, I think that there's a lot of parallel between them, but like my my more dominant setting and my more subsetting depend completely on the person. Right. Like otherwise I, I my neutral setting saying. is where yeah. it's at. But yeah, it's still, it's just from a switch perspective. I'm like, I don't think that there's one that I just ride most frequently. It depends on really who I'm talking to in that moment and how I conceptualize myself in relation. I think that's a good, as we talk about the different terms, that's one to perhaps talk about more. Uh, before going to that, one more point to uh, cover your question about some other terms that come up. You'd mentioned fetishes. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, that term itself can have different meanings, and that also highlights or goes to emphasize how we have different overlapping circles. And to give one example, so for instance, uh, if we had something like Family Feud, and the question was, name a fetish, I'm willing to wager that the number one choice would be a foot fetish. Yes, I agree with your wager. In, in terms of like what people know and think of as a fetish? Right. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so service says, I'm betting that's what service says. So... But you can have people who have a foot fetish who have no interest in BDSM. You can have people who have a foot, and foot fetish is most commonly associated with submission. But you can have somebody who has a foot fetish but who actually identifies as a dominant. So it goes back to, you know, it's harder to describe this as overlapping circles. It's easier to... Describe this, okay, this person has a response to dominance. This person also has a response to feet. So uh, the biggest umbrella is perception, right? Because ultimately even that part, like what is dominant or what is submissive, pending an act, can shift. Like in a lot of ways, a woman sucking a man's penis, giving a blowjob, seems like a male-dominant women or female submissive act I also sit there thinking like, while your dick is in my mouth, I'm pretty much in control of what's happening to your entire body. It feels like a really submissive dominant act. So it goes both ways in terms of perception and and who's... Perception, attention, and so many other factors. I mean, even in a case like that, I mean, if the, you know, uh, in that scenario, if the man is uh, bound to a cross and, you know, essentially get it, you know, if he's getting you know, edge to orgasm and then has a ruined orgasm, like, and on purpose by, like, a femdom, there is nothing that's really dominant about that. That's an active submission choice. Absolutely. So. And if you guys were looking for answers tonight, <laughs> so we hope to leave you with a lot of questions and a lot of ways of thinking about things, but um, I think the dominant, dominant, oh, it's so cute, the overriding thing uh, you might find tonight is that there isn't an exact it's 100% a personal experience. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's less the action, it's more the intention and the mindset around it that define the action. Mm-hmm. So oral your sex, oral sex can, they are dominants who perform oral sex on their partners and it doesn't change who's dominant, who's submissive. There are people who are not into kink who perform oral sex on each other and there's no power associated with that at all. It's just more just coming from a place of love. Yeah. And so... Uh, and you can you can extend that idea even to hitting somebody. So to give you an example, I guess what I'm saying is that there's this perception, or there might be this perception if somebody's not aware of a kink, is that it's to hit somebody is a, is a, is a show of hostility. It's a bad act. It means you don't like them. <laughs> because that's usually the paradigm that we have outside of kink. But to give you an example, so what if I told you that there is a man who's about 180 pounds, and he just went and hit this man who's about 350 pounds on the head. He just slapped him on the head. And most people will think something bad is going to come out of that. Right, like biker bar, 350-pound man, turns around, exhales slowly through his nostrils, 180 <laughs> runs, or otherwise <laughs> he's Thor. He, he reaches <laughs> his hand out for a hammer. <laughs> Go on. So now, what if I told you that both those men are wearing football jerseys, football uniforms, the same team. And the smaller man just went and congratulated the big man on making a big play, and that's how he was congratulating him. He hit him on the head. Mm-hmm. Same act, hitting somebody in the head, 
but the intention and the context around it are what are defining it. And so the same thing applies in kink. When you hit somebody, you're not expressing hostility towards them. Usually what that means is you're expressing a positive gesture towards them because we do kink with people we like. And so it's a validating gesture versus a hostile gesture. And so, yeah, just to emphasize the point, it's not the act, but the intention and the context around it that give it meaning. Always. Yeah. I mean, even so, and the specific type of play that you're talking about there uh, for people who don't know that it has its own name is impact, um, which is something that is extremely common in the scene and what you're speaking about in terms of hitting or, or striking someone. But And by and large, that tends to be something done by uh, a dom to a submissive or a top to a bottom, but it doesn't have to be, is your point. Like the the spectrum of that also can change depending on the intent and what's been negotiated. Sure. Yeah, so let's uh, go further down some of these terms. So yeah. you brought up some other terms. So some terms are dominant and submissive, and sadist and masochist, and top and bottom. So what do all these terms mean? There are no universal definitions for these terms. So I'll talk about two common ones that are associated with top and bottom. Some people will use top and bottom to mean top being the person who is doing something. So if you've got somebody, if you've got person A flogging person B, then person A is the top, person B is the bottom. Person A is the one who's delivering it, person B is the one who's receiving it. Some people will use top and bottom to describe that situation where one person is performing an activity, the other person is receiving it. Some people will use top and bottom as umbrella terms where top generally means somebody who is towards the dominant side of the spectrum. And so bottom, more in control. Or, you know, that, that general role, yes. So At least from an intention standpoint, like they are the one who is actively even, or they could be doing or receiving an act, but they are the one who is in control of what's happening. Uh, not so much as that tops might be used to collectively refer to dominance and sadists. and Sure. And then bottoms might be used to collectively refer to masochists and submissives. So sometimes the terms are used that way also. It's confusing because what I just said is, you know, there's a little bit of difference uh-huh. in what I just described. So the first way where I said somebody who's delivering something, if that person is a top, there, and that person could be submissive. So person A could be flogging person B and person B could be dictating it like, hey, no, do it like this. So in that situation, or even in that relationship, person B might be the dominant. And here we have person A being the top. So it's kind of confusing. So the point is that the terms are used different ways by different people. Knowing that they're used in different ways by different people helps us know that we need to ask for clarification. Hey, so you say you're at top. What does that mean to you? But those are two terms, top and bottom. And then dominant and submissive, there's more universal agreement about that. Dominant is somebody who is, I'm, I'm laughing because I just said there's more universal agreement, and then I know if I go and post this somewhere, there'll be this humongous debate. Yeah, it's like, that's not mean. true. <laughs> yeah. But yes, so, I, I, I mean, I think what we're talking about here, and because even with what you were just talking about in my head, I was running through like nuanced versions of all of that. And it again goes back to what we talked about where so much of it is a subjective understanding of self around how you define, which is, I mean, even to your point, when you ask the question, like, oh, you're a top, okay, what does that mean to you? <clears throat> because it can be something that whatever our, under, whatever my personal understanding of what that is may not be the exact same thing, which, I mean, is why 
that communication piece around all of this and all of Kink and BDSM is so essential. And I mean, it's what it means to you and how you want to be perceived and what goes into that. So that's also on its own layers. Like, what am I thinking about myself? How do I want others to think about me? And what do I do to perform that? Are three different like, kind of ways of thinking about how those coalesce. Um, I also wanted to say, oh, so just to throw a little humor in, topping from the bottom is a so colloquial that was, expression. That was of, the nuance I was right. thinking of and not so, trying to get into. Well, it's a it's a cute it's a cutesy and sometimes really broadly and annoying way of describing um, the more submissive party. So the not even the most submissive, the party that is receiving whatever is happening, controlling the situation. So often I think about it in terms of just sex play. And like topping from the bottom is if I'm on the bottom and snow's on top, then I'm controlling what's happening and going on from my bottom position, even though he's the one on top of that. Circle back, I don't ever hear the expression subbing from the bottom. And that I think speaks to the difference between top and bottom being more ubiquitous kind of terms and dom and sub being very different in their distinction. Occasionally, we'll hear the term bottoming from the top, though. But topping from the bottom, I think sometimes the term is overused. And I think, and often this term is used with a negative connotation to it. Yeah. And I think That's sometimes, I'm sorry? I didn't mean good brat. I meant brat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think sometimes the term is used when really the better term would be to say, hey, not like you're topping from the bottom, hey, our styles are not compatible. I think that's the more accurate statement for yeah. those scenarios. And those are, that's way better communication. So, um, good. Circle back. So, dominant and submissive. I think that we can say that dominant is a person who's in the dominant role and submissive is a person who's in the submissive role. And I think most people would agree to that where the differences would come up is when we start to talk about what it means to be dominant, what it means to be submissive. And maybe we can come back to that. Agreed. Then the other terms are sadists and masochists. Sadists are people who get some type of gratification from inflicting pain or discomfort onto somebody. That could be physical or emotional. And masochists are people who like to receive that. And dominance and submission and sadism and masochism are independent things. You could have somebody who identifies as a dominant but also identifies as a masochist. And again, these are not either or. They can occur in degrees. And you can have somebody who is a submissive, who likes to be, who, who doesn't necessarily like to control somebody, be in a position of authority over somebody, but might like to inflict pain. So... Um, so like getting a command from a dominant to inflict pain on another person could be a submissive, sadistic role. So that is actually something that is bringing the overlap in, where they're simultaneously being submissive and a sadist. And it could be that, any, in a given situation, it could be that somebody's just being submissive. That is, they're doing it just because they're being instructed to do it. It's not that they have this independent drive to do it. But you could also have somebody who gets joy from being submissive, but also gets joy from just inflicting pain on somebody. Sure. They don't necessarily want to be in control or command that person and do some other things that are associated with dominance. They just simply enjoy the act of giving 
they're inflicting pain. And there are people who identify as sadists, and they have no interest in they don't have they don't have an interest in dominance or submission. So, um, the charts are real, and like if you guys make your own charts that you're just trying to follow along with what we're talking about and figure out where you may fall on the the pie graph of the chart of. We are so down to receive your illustrations and your ways of like explaining to your partner what you're listening to. Please send them our way. And actually, uh, I think the one other term that uh, we've kind of we've talked about, um, but is probably worth talking about a little bit more in depth, is the term switch. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's switch to that topic. So ah. I have. I don't know if I should call it a weakness, a bad habit, a vice, but I am fond of wordplay and puns and anything you can do with word, inserting song lyrics into a sentence where they become part of the conversation. He's making me so wet right now. (laughs) Marvel happens to be a uh, a massive fan of puns and wordplay and is quite possibly, uh, in terms of idiot savants, uh, she may be the greatest at uh, lyrical recall, so like song lyrics. Mm. She may not know who's singing it or what the name of the song is or what album it's off of, but, I mean, she will just know all of the lyrics. So she has a very big appreciation for that, which is why that's just a huge turn-on for her. (laughs) So Switch. (laughs) So we talked about Switch a little bit. That if we talk about, if we draw that analogy to the Kinsey scale, you've got homosexual at one end, heterosexual at the other end, and everybody falls around between, and in the middle you've got, like, you know, uh, a, a complete bisexual person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if complete is the right adjective, but, you know, somebody is right smack in the middle. So the equivalent of that in the DS continuum would be switch. Somebody can go either way. And, but being a switch... Uh, is a lot more complex than that because, well, one, switching can take different forms. Somebody could be a switch with respect to only SM and not DS, or somebody could be a switch with respect to both, or somebody could be a switch with the same partner. And for some people, it has to be across different people. They can be submissive to one partner, but they can't be dominant towards that partner. They have to express their dominance with somebody else. Yeah, that's something actually we have uh, know a fair amount of people that, you know, are in, you know, a, a DS, you know, relationship with a partner, but will occasionally want to sub, but will never sub to their sub. They won't switch. Right. Uh, even if they, and they may not even identify as switch. So it's like, nope, I'm a dom. And then, you know, every once in a while, I have this one person who does this one act that is a submissive thing. And that is kept completely separate from my, you know, general kind of primary partner. Right. That's how I feel about submission. With You are the person that I submit to, and the rest of it I go on a spectrum between, like, some kind of subby parts of switch, but I I don't sub to anybody but you. Right. Because that would just be weird. It'd be so weird. Right, and that's kind of your uh, what you've been talking about, too, see where, you know, somebody could you know in that sense she only subs to me but she may bottom to other people for certain acts right and for some people you know they're all there's a variety of gender identities uh 
but some people who they submit to can depend on the other person's gender. It may have to be, you know, either male or female or maybe just female and non-binary genders. So that can also play a role into who somebody might submit to. Sure. No, I was just thinking about that in terms of, like, some of our female dom friends. And I still have, like, this weird, like, I want to play for a moment, but I don't want to fully submit because that, it feels like an act of love towards you. That I, like, pull my hair, spank me, that's different. Like, it's bottoming, but it's not submission. Just thinking about stuff. (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) Trying to think. I mean, in terms of, I mean, we can go down rabbit holes for days, and I think that kind of with each of these topics, they could be an entire episode all on their own. So I think, but uh, unless there are other terms that you can think of that are kind of at that high level, then um, I think we can probably head to our our next topic if you'd like. I think we've covered the main terms. Uh, I think this is a good time to head to the next one, which is, you know, like ever wonder why this happens? Why are some people like this and how many of their... How many people are like that in the population? And uh, to me, that's fascinating to talk about that. Think about that. It's not just everyone woke. (laughs) No, you like wake up from the matrix and you're like, oh, the Renaissance was real. Kink, BDSM, fetish, go. We call that frenzy. It's a different term. That's why my sample size isn't our full sample size. So, you know... I think we are starting to see more studies where that sample size is growing. You know, so we so for the longest time we've been like looking at just Kinsey studies back from the fifties, but now more and more there's more and more research like that coming out. And by that I mean, you know, there are people who are into kink or they're not, but they're doing like say doctoral research on matters like kink. You know, there is um, a group out of a university in Illinois. Uh, I think Science of BDSM is. Uh, might be the name for the group. I'm drawing a blank on it, but they have done some really interesting research and a couple of things that I remember from that. One is that they were doing some studies where they were examining brain waves of people while they were doing kink and comparing it to you know how the brain responds across a variety of other activities. So I, I want to read more about that research. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And you know research about the demographics so and science of bdsm.com so one other thing that comes that i remember from that is that um which relates to the question of how common it is so they did a survey asking people do you have an interest in bdsm and some percent responded yes i don't recall what that number is uh, but what I do recall is what was interesting was that then they went and asked people. So they had a survey and they asked that question, are you into BDSM? And they said, you know, a bunch of people said no. And then they went on and asked them, are you into these activities? Right. And there were several activities that you would associate with BDSM and they'd say yes. So that brought up an interesting question, you know, why this disparity? And how much of it is potentially just a semantic issue where, or a self-perception issue where it's just like, I don't consider myself into that stuff, but sure, I like spanking my wife occasionally. Right. Like, well, that could be, so. Right. I think there are a couple of reasons that might be behind that, and one is something you brought up, it just might be semantics, you know, what does BDSM mean? What does kink mean? And somebody's image or definition of that might be what they've seen in porn, perhaps, or they've seen in Fifty Shades of Grey, perhaps, and they're like, oh, that's not me. So one of it might be different 
definitions that are associated with the terms. I think the other might also be a question of identity. So, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, people for whom BDSM is part of their identity, they're more likely to say, yes, I'm into BDSM. And, but there are some people for whom it's not part of the identity. It's something, you know, there's some activities they do, but they don't identify with that. It kind of goes back to that question about continuums. Your interest in BDSM is not either yes or no. It falls somewhere along that continuum that could be relevant to. Yeah, and I mean, it also might be a, a matter of, you know, just as an example, something, you know, someone who may consider themselves extremely conservative, but they do have, you know, specific things that even if they know or are aware that they could be considered something that's, you know, kinky or a fetish, that, you know, they are just in a denial moment where they do not want to think of themselves in that way from, you know, a uh, an acceptance standpoint, so therefore they are not. I'll throw a couple of other statistics at you that kind of help sure. drive this point. So, um there, been, there have been different studies that uh, show, you know, what percent of the population has an interest in kink. And uh, the one that I remember the most is one of the first ones I came across, and I believe this was from the Kinsey. It's, it's definitely cited on the Kinsey Institute, the website for it. Uh, but according to one survey, about 20% to men and maybe like about 12, 13% of women said that they responded, they had an erotic response to stories that had strong BDSM themes like the story of O. And I think that's a pretty reliable metric. So, you know, somewhere between 15, 20% of the population. This was back in the 50s where people are, might have been more likely to not reveal that interest. Sure. And also, um, if we throw in that point about people might have the interest but might distance themselves from the term. So the point is that number could potentially be have been higher even in that sample of people. Sure. I would even think that looking back from where we are now, that if you add the sample of people currently who think that role-playing to the 1950s is part of that, then there's an even larger sample size. I certainly know that like, if I pour him like two fingers of scotch, we've got steak and potatoes in the oven, and I put an apron on, like, that is 100% of that sample size. And just like a portion of like what we can add to it for today. So, yeah, you've got that. And then <laughs> if uh, if you look at, uh, and, and that was, you know, that was that metric, right? People who had that response. If you look to people like who likes to tie their partners up or who likes scratching or biting, that number jumped up to close to like 50%. Yeah, because a lot of people yeah. think of those as just like, oh, that's innocuous, and that's just yeah. something that can be a part of kind of just really passionate sex. Right. And it's like, and sure, it can be, and it can also be something where it's like, well, wait, but is sex only better if those things happen? Then yeah. all of a sudden it's just like, oh, well, I've never thought about that. Yeah. And if, if we go back to that intention thing, that it may very well be that people are doing it without the intent being SM or DS. So, sure. So I allow that some of those people who like that are doing it just this for spies, for something different. But uh, so so we've got those numbers. Now, some years back, we got into this debate about what affects how many people from which country are on FetLife. What affects that? What are the factors that affect that? So I went around looking at what percent of the population of different countries were on FetLife. And the highest was Canada. And that was less than half a percent. 
Next was the U.S. That was also less than half a percent, like somewhere like about 0.4 percent. Of number of active users from countries? So I took the number of users from the U.S. on FetLife and mm-hmm. divided that by the population of the U.S. Gotcha. I took the numbers of people on FetLife from Canada, divided that by the population of yeah. Canada. So I came up with these percentages. Gotcha. And uh, this was a few years back. The numbers might be, um, this was around 2013. FetLife started around 2008, 2007. Those numbers, as its name grew, those numbers, those percentages might be a little more now. But still, if we accept that the number of people into kink are somewhere between, so let's say 15%, you know, that study, that one study I cited, and less than half a percent are on fat life, that also kind of goes toward how many people consider it enough of their identity to go pursue it. And, you know, and even to, even to have an awareness of it. So uh, for people who don't know, uh, FetLife.com is a, uh, it's an online BDSM and kink community and fetish community where uh, essentially it's a, um, it's a social platform where people can share what their, what their kinks are, uh, meet people, find groups of like-minded people for their specific kinks or fetishes, share photos and videos, and... Uh, it, but it is something too, where it, like, even to your point, I mean, certainly it's not as though only the only people who are into any of this are on that site, because that was something I know that, I mean, I didn't even find it until just a couple of years ago when I would officially say that I started coming into the scene and going to munches and learning more about kink and BDSM. I didn't even know it was there. So, I mean, it, I mean, which is obviously something else that would kind of skew what that is as a representation of the community, but I would find it incredibly hard to believe that uh, that is the only portion of the population that is into anything scene-related. <laughs> right. You know, let's talk a little bit about how it comes to be. Why are some people like that and why are some not? And uh, I, I think that, you know, as time goes on, as more people do research, we might have better ideas about it. Um, right now, it's more just a guess around. But I think that, uh, you know, reading stories about, hearing stories of different people about how they first discovered their interest kind of led to this sense that, uh, this is what I believed at first, that somewhere in time, somebody had an experience that related to either SM or DS that took on erotic significance. So, for example, I remember the story of one person who remembered that he had a crush uh, this was a man who at one point had a crush on this girl, and she did things that uh, you might associate with dominance or SM to him. And, you know, that's what he thinks led to developing this arousal, you know, that her feelings toward her got intertwined with those activities. And so, you know, I read enough of these, you know, somebody who has a rubber fetish and can has some fond memories of lying on rubber sheets at some point. So I read enough of these stories where I developed this sense, okay, so somewhere a long time, somebody has this experience that somehow takes on this erotic significance for them. But then I've met enough people who share genes, as in genetic genes, not fabric genes, uh, who have an interest in BDSM. And, you know, in, in this discussion online, somebody made the point, hey, think about all these other traits we get genetically. Like, you know, people tell me just the way I have, the, the manner in which I look at people reminds them 
of my father. And you know, I don't, I don't think that's something that I like watched him do and mimicked it. <laughs> uh, you know, and my brother and my sister don't do it. So I think there are some behaviors that do just get passed down. Behaviors, traits, you know, whether it's patience, temperament, right? So, I mean, temperament, are yeah. forever a genetic. Uh, who knows what? Right. That's There's why nature nurture is temperament. Yeah, exactly. So if all those things can be passed down, then why not an interest in kink? And I think it could get passed down in the sense of an actual role, like a preference for either submission or dominance. Or it could get passed down as the likelihood of responding to some kind of stimulus. So I talked about that experience that that guy had. I'm calling that experience a stimulus that led to developing this interest. And so what, what, what gets passed down might just be, you know, this greater propensity to respond to a stimulus of that type. So I think how it comes to be is a mix of nature and nurture. That's what's often believed for so many things. I think it applies here. And in terms of, like, power exchange as a variable and what you grew up with or what was passed down through generational experiences um, and then also the opposition of, you know, so some of what we have proclivities to are things that we directly experienced, and some of our proclivities can be in opposition to our experience. So I have something we were talking about earlier, like my, um, I was raised in a very uh, American ideal of female-oriented body image household. You know, like skinny was upheld, and Weight Watchers was the only alternative to anything we were doing. And I grew up in this world where I overtly got messages from my mom about what it was to be good enough and to have that appropriate body. And then covertly when she was miserable with herself for not having that ideal. And yet this fetish develops around like bellies are sexy. Like they're hot and they're fun to play with and they feel good mm -hmm. and curves feel good. And like trying to orient that moment, which is, like I look at it as a fetish because it's in direct opposition to how I was raised. And it's not in some hearkening, like, beautiful moment of that was a beautiful experience and I want more of that. It was, I hate thinking about myself or anybody that way. So when I can see women just loving on their bellies or other people loving on women's bellies, fuck, that's hot. Yeah, you bring up a good point. You know, there are, goes back to human behavior so complex. There, You know, I, I, I named... I talked about two ways, you know, one was a nature and one was a nurture, which was one specific experience. You just brought up a good point, you know. There are probably other paths and mechanisms how this happens that we don't know. Yeah, and who knows how many of those kind of to uh, what you're talking about, Marvel, around, you know, if, you know, when you're younger and your experience is that something is bad or it's, you know, something that's being restricted or, you know. Uh, shame inducing. Sh shame, all of that. Uh, can be something certainly in, in a case like yours where by kind of flipping that, it's taking ownership of something uh, that what felt like it was being taken away from you or was you were being shamed for it or felt guilty for having it and being able to now express that and show appreciation for something that you really do like that is something to you that is sexual and is erotic is you know a, a major flip. Right. From, from and then getting to navigate the what's on to me and what is voyeuristic and all of that. Because mm -hmm. I still hold the same category where I'm like, uh, no, I'm not trying to be fat ever. But I also love the idea that like I could be and it could be good. <laughs> but also like, no, because I love how my skinny jeans feel. 
So it's a journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so um, outside of that, and so I mean, obviously there, I mean, to my knowledge, there aren't real studies on that from a uh, a nature level, correct? Like so, uh, even though I mean, kind of what you're talking about is that you know you can like, and we can attest to that as well that we know people that are you know related that uh, t- are in the scene and or have similar you know likes and desires. Um, but are you aware of any other? Uh, studies that exist that are examining that? I imagine there are studies that are going on. I'm not aware of any that okay. I can cite, uh, but I I am sure if there are not any that have happened already, there will be with time. Like I said, there's more academic attention coming to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you certainly know? in terms of genome research and like what do we actually have genes that control these proclivities or vulnerabilities? That'd be an interesting one. I think, you know, I can think of like so many topics in which I would like to see research, that's one of them, you know. Okay. Not just there's, like the longitudinal studies, which are also brilliant, yeah. about like how does growing up in this environment impact decisions and decision-making, but I mean, it's both sides because yeah. temperament's the wild card, folks. If you're looking for like a yes or no nature nurture, it's temperament. Ah. <laughs> and that's what I want to do my doctoral thesis on. There you go. I remember another... So sometimes it just can get people online and get curious, and they'll do their own studies. And I remember once there was just like this survey. Hey, everybody, uh, what's your Myers-Briggs personality type? Let's see if there's some correlation between those personality types and an interest in gangs. So state your personality type and then state your role preference. And I don't even remember what came out of that. I think it was mostly even, and that kind of goes with one of my beliefs that the interest in kink is randomly distributed across population. And so you'll see the trends that you see in population in kink also. Okay. I would I, think culturally also the way that we see like all sorts of things come out of nomadic dri- drawings and tribal drawings and through like civilization through all, through multiple time spheres. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's, you know, um, there were maybe like a couple of trends, like I think introverts might have been a little bit higher in that. But, you know, that was a very uncontrolled study, right? We sure, are, and I mean, I could make guesses around how I'd think that distribution would be, but, I mean... They'd be based on no, our marriage. Well... I'm like, they're all ENTJs and INTJs, right? No. Just like the outward corners. No, but I, no. Like, I could... <laughs> so it's like, but I can see it kind of uh, going both ways, where it's like you have somebody who... Uh, like, like just throwing it out there, like, let's say that, you know, uh, introverts tend to be submissives, which I can also think like, well, or maybe they would tend to be dominant. And this is the way that they're able to express themselves to kind of get out of, uh, get out of self and to be in control of something, but then need to kind of retreat and have their own time and decompress and have their own aftercare to, uh, to kind of deal with and assess what that scene may have been for them or what that uh, relationship may have been. So, yeah, and it, in reality, it would not surprise me that it would be a broad cross-section, and it's not as though it's like this type of person does this. You know, there's this is a point I'd like to come back to because uh, that's an interesting point, and it also relates to some images that are associated with the roles. But one more point before that, um, and what was that point? <laughs> So uh, the studies, yes. I would like to see a study 
that would look at if there's any correlation between an interest in kink across cultures. And specifically, there are some cultures that are more power distant and there are some cultures that are more relaxed. And I'd like to see if there's a greater percentage of people into kink in the more power distant cultures. And the idea behind I'm that sorry, is... Are you saying power distant? Power distant. So by power distant, I mean it's a term I picked up in a social psychology course. It okay. means that a culture in which stat differences in status create a greater difference in power. Sure. And so, so the you know, social hierarchy right makes for that power. Right. Okay. And there's an so. obvious power exchange in roles versus more just collaborative is what I kind of think about when I think about a relaxed society. Collaborative, more egalitarian. So like some of the examples I remember, I have not been to Australia, but uh, the TA or the instructor, whoever was talking about that at the time, mentioned Australia as a culture which is low on power distance. Unless you're Aboriginal. And. <laughs> or a koala. No, that was original. <laughs> Sorry. My apologies. No, it's okay. We're going to edit all of that. Yeah, okay. For sure. <laughs> the Thanks, painful babe. puns. So, um, and, and I think Japan might be a culture you might think of as one that is power distant. Sure. Yeah. Well, and actually what I think is funny too is that how we uh, have these, or at least I think there are some large misconceptions, or not necessarily misconceptions, but uh, acceptance of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not trite. Uh, something that we commonly know but may not be true. Colloquial? Nope. Myths. Kind of, yeah, myths or things like that. Or so like a, as an example. Misconceptions. Mis well, they certainly can be, but there are things that we all kind of uh, agree upon. Because Stereotypes. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know where that word was, but thank, thank you, see. We are really yeah. digging deep so, for you. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't Stereotypes, be folks. Yeah, you know, like the word everyone knows that I didn't have for a moment. Thank you. Uh, so, but things like where uh, German culture tends to be kinkier. I mean, that, that's something that is a common no, They throw kinkier dungeon parties. Sure. And they started earlier. Uh, maybe. Blade. <laughs> You're not helpful. Uh, so, but th things like that or that... Culture. Uh, high-powered uh, business people may tend to want to be dominated because right. they are, you know, powerful and dominant all day. All they want to do is let go and lose control, you know. In I, I want to throw this life. out there. So, I reference that regularly amongst a non-kink environment, and people have no idea what I'm talking about. I find that really interesting. I, yeah, it's like bizarre to me because I thought that was just a general colloquial myth, and it's not. Stereotype? Both. I think, <laughs> I think that theory is hogwash. Do you? I like so, it. So, and it may, and it may oh, very well be, but it, I yeah. mean, but that's something that I personally hold as like, I mean, yeah. certainly not true, but something I I think as just something Makes that sense. is, yeah, yeah, is like, okay, I can imagine, you know, somebody wanting the opposite, or yeah. uh, but so, very easily yeah. you could imagine somebody in a high power situation being like, this is what I am all the time, so yeah. let's do some impact. I want to top you. Get on the cross. So, so I, I said that a bit facetiously. Okay. I do believe <laughs> that. I, 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 so let me elaborate and tell you what I mean. So I think that there are two things that perhaps contribute to, to that notion that high-powered people enjoy submission because it gives them a release, and a relief from all that responsibility and having to be on all the time. And I think that high-powered people may get an added benefit by when they take on a submissive role. 
But I don't think that's the defining reason. I think that may be an additional reason, but not the defining reason. And uh, here are some of the reasons why I believe that. One is that you will find people into submission across a variety of personalities, people who have dominant personalities otherwise and submissive personalities. So in other words, your role preference in BDSM is not the same as your personality orientation. You can have somebody with a dominant personality who enjoys submission and the other way around, somebody who has perhaps a timid personality but who gets off on being dominant. And uh, I think that the primary reason for both of these is psychosexual. That is, it brings them some kind of psychosexual gratification, psychological, sexual, just some kind of a feeling that feels good. That is their reason to do it. Now, their personalities might bring yet added benefits. So that person who is this high-powered person, when they go and do submission, they're getting different joys from it. And one of those joys or, 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 or rewards is that they're getting this release. Uh, but if it was just a release by itself, I think we would see more people perhaps just, you know, maybe this thing skewed in favor of people who are high-powered. I think one reason that contributes to that notion is that that's what we see perhaps as clients or professional dominance. But then clients or professional dominance... But then they're also the, they're the ones who can afford it. Exactly. So I think <laughs> so that's that something else. that could be else. slightly skewed. Right. So I think that's well, something else. It's also else a media that. representation of it, and that's a much more fun story. So, I mean, I think that's a big part okay. of it, like that high-powered individual that wants to inflict pain and continue in that role versus the high-powered individual who wants to be in a submissive role, we just see more media depictions of people who have. Sure. I mean, you could be the Patrick Batemans of the world and, you know, like from an American psycho level and just basically be a dom through everything, obviously, in a, I mean, not in a realistic way, but uh, then also, yeah, there are tons of depictions in, you know, film and television of, you know, that person who is, you know, a, you know, a CEO or, you know, high powered executive who then seeks out, you know, uh, a femdom or uh, some type of way to submit so that Yet they somehow that femdom never takes like the dominant role in the movie. Different episode. <laughs> so um, I'm thinking of movies that take that on. Yes. Different episode. Let's come back to that. But yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, I mean, just talking about film in general and its place, yeah, yeah. absolutely, it would be a fun episode to do. So, yeah. so to emphasize, then, just you know, again, that I was being facetious when I said that. I I don't think that that's the only reason or the defining reason, but that could be a significant reason why somebody who otherwise has high responsibility during the day might find joy in submission. And um, so you know why. Do people like dominance and submission? Why do they do it? And I spoke about that just a couple of minutes ago, that it's some kind of a psychosexual reward. So what is it? For some people, it is just sexual arousal. They get turned on by dominance and submission or by sadism and masochism. For some people, physical pain can directly translate to physical arousal. Whether or not they've been abused. Correct. Which I think is a common myth in our society, in American society, that uh, somehow it's a trauma relation and it's direct to like childhood abuse equals you're going to like this. Correct. It's not a direct correlation given every research study you can indicate, right? There is one I can think of 
uh, and the reason it stands out is that often on adult sites, you'll see these warnings, attention, University of Sydney, you do not have my permission. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I think the reason that this came to be is that at one time, there's a group of universities in Australia, University of Sydney was one of them, they did a study about sexuality, and they were specifically doing a study about the demographics of BDSM. And so from little bits of details I've picked up, uh, they reached out to people in Adult Friend Finder. It's an adult website. Mm -hmm. And they sought out volunteers for a survey from there. And according to that study, so they also had some interesting, you know, statistics. Like I think 2% of the population was actively engaged in BDSM. So they had some interesting statistics about that. But what I remember most from that study is that they found that people who are into BDSM have had no greater incidence of abuse in their past or that they commit and, you know, no greater incidence of dysfunction. So in other words, you know, their conclusion was that it's, it's a sexual minority. Otherwise they're everyday ordinary people. So, so yes, you asked about any studies. That's one. It's back from 2008. If anybody wants to look that up, 2008 demographics of BDSM. If you throw in University of Sydney in there, it might bring it up more quickly. (laughs) So, um, you know, why do people do it? So it can be arousal, but it can also be that what we talked about, that high-powered person that goes into submission, you know, for them it might be like meditation. You know, they go into this zen, calm mindset. Sure. Which is rewarding for them. You know, that's something sometimes people get from BDSM. I myself sometimes, that's what I'm feeling. Are you talking about what people call subspace or dom space? I think... I've seen, you know, DS scenes where the uh, dominant will have them take on a really menial task, but make them do it for an extended period of time. But for them, by taking that direction and doing that, and it could be something uh, hands bound or tied behind them, and then they had to uh, start creating, and then they threw out like a bunch of like markers or crayons or something on the floor, and then was told them, all right, so I need you to draw something or write something or, you know, answer these math problems, but you have to do it by using your feet to pick up the marker to be able to uh, write them out. And it was really interesting because I could start to see that this person was, like, really happy about having to do it. And it was that kind of moment, or it looked to be that type of moment where it was uh, almost a meditation for them to be out of control and being told what to do in that moment, in that scene. It can be different things, yes. So I'll use this as a segue to talk about a concept that I think that will help explain this, which is the different need centers. And I think when you talk about humans in general have different need centers. There's a need center that is that has esteem-related needs. That's the need center that wants to be respected and thought of as competent. There's a need center that wants to uh, just maintain their general well-being, you know, their health, their livelihood. Uh, there's a need center that wants to love, give love, receive love, form social connections. And there's a need center that has spiritual needs, uh, whether it is to give yourself to a greater cause, whether it's to connect with other people. Um, so there are all these need centers which are, I think, common to humans. Then in addition to these nent- these need centers, uh, people into kink have another need center which might create masochistic or sadistic or dominant or submissive needs. And so... What somebody is getting from kink can simultaneously appeal to all these need centers. So speaking for myself, 
when I said that sometimes when I'm doing kink, I just feel this calm, this meditative calm. I just feel like this is right. I'm not necessarily aroused at that time, but I'm feeling this, this, this happy feeling. And so why people like kink, it's a mix of all these different feelings, all these different need centers, getting something, or, or you know, every activity will be different. And one given activity might appeal to just one need center, but another activity might appeal to all of them. But overall, I think people who are into kink relate to it through these need centers. So people who have kinky relationships, their expression of kink or their their practice of kink is part of their social expression. It's part of the way they express love. You know, it's critical to their relationship expression. If they're going to have a romantic or a sexual relationship with somebody, kink has to be in there. It becomes part of that. So in some ways, it becomes something like holding hands. You know, we have different ways where we might express a romantic relationship. For some people, kink needs to be part of that relationship expression. So just like holding holding hands, flogging or spanking might be crucial to or an important part of their relationship expression. And then for people who are part of the kink community, I think one need that they're getting from it or one gratification that they're getting from it, uh, it's common amongst humans to seek community. They get something from that. And so for some people, kink fulfills that need, that need of family, that need of that, that tribe, uh, people they can identify with, people they spend time communing with. And so that's another reason people are drawn to kink. So in short, people are drawn to kink for human reasons, and uh, and those human reasons are intertwined with either their masochism or sadism or dominance and submission. Like any other hobby. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that for some I would describe, for myself, I would describe uh, kink in different expressions that I enjoy a lot like a lot of people describe yoga as having a difference in terms of something that's just a physical physical activity or something that's just a hobby, it has that mind-body-spirit connection to it and certainly can. Yes. And that is, it's holizing, for lack of a better word. Like, it, 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 it's like a unity of self that I think is a lot, speaks a lot to your meditative expression you were talking about. And, you know, this would be a good time to credit Midori. So if you have not heard of Midori, she is this brilliant educator who travels, presents internationally. She's brilliant, and she talks about, writes about all kinds of thought-provoking things that are around BDSM. And uh, one thing she mentioned at one of our classes was that uh, the reason, the motivation to do kink is to achieve a change in state, the state of your mind, your headspace. Yes. And that change can be, you know, there can be different paths or different types of changes. It could be sexual. It could be what I just talked about, you know, some type of a meditative change. But you're doing kink to end up in this state that you like, that you find gratifying. And that's the reason people do kink. Or exploratory. And that's a good reason also. Like, It's not just because. It's because I want to know what this is. Yeah. To give you a couple other examples that perhaps relate this and draw analogies to some activities that are more familiar in life. So people often talk about a runner's high. What that is, is that somebody's going through some physical stress. And as a result of that, the body's releasing chemicals that create this good buzz. Uh, some people get that buzz through kink, through impact play, through getting flogged. 
And just like a runner's high, it doesn't just come down to endorphins. It goes through our stress processes and our dopamine response system and endorphins and the rest of that. Yeah. Just want to throw that out there. Some other examples, you know, when you do something for somebody, like imagine that you love somebody and you do something for them, whether it's family, your lover, or friends, you get this satisfaction. So often in kink, people are doing what they're doing to get that satisfaction. They're doing something for somebody. Another example is there's this concept called flow, which is a term in psychology, and it means that somebody gets this gratification from hyper-focus on something, and that something could be rock climbing or knitting. And that, that hyper-focus and that activity creates this calm, serene state of mind. And I am convinced that sometimes people go through that in kink, where they are focused on the activity and each other. Yeah. And I have seen that, witnessed that, where I've seen sometimes people playing, and, and it, it, you can almost see, see this connection between them, even though there's nothing but air between them. But you can just almost feel like they're connected. Yeah, energy exchange. And they're so, yeah, and they're so focused on each other. And so, you know, I think that's another way kink can create a pleasant, pleasing state of mind that we can relate to. Oh, okay, hey, this is how it happens. Yeah. I love that part of, like, scenes that we've done where there's a big exhibitionist in me that likes the being watched, and there's a big part of me that only enjoys the activity that we're in because of what the energy exchange between Snow and I is. And the, the pleasure and vibe that he gets off of striking me feels like I can feel that energy, sh that shift. And then every so often, like, I peek my eyes open, and there's a whole bunch of people out there, and that's a, it's a rise from my exhibitionist. But then the joy of closing my eyes and getting to go back inside and feel that shift in power again and the play between us. Like, it's not power like he's in power. It's power like, you know, like, like Avatar sparkles. And that, yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, <laughs> both of us being as invested in one another's pleasure and, in, and being really present in the moment of that scene is something, I mean, that's why we play. It know? makes the they go away. Even in around a crowd of people and my initial proclivity to being watched and getting like just easy external validation, that energy exchange makes the they go away. And that's so much more beautiful and powerful for it. Yeah. You know, this, this whole conversation brings to mind a couple of scenes or photos I saw that sort of, uh, that embody what we just talked about. So there's a book called Kiss of Fire by Barbara Nitke. It's a photography book. And Barbara Nitke is, uh, she is a professional photographer. Um, and she's done, you know, photography for various important things like maybe the David Letterman show or covers for adult films. And she, I think, was also part of a lawsuit against the U.S. government when they started passing some things that were making it harder to put adult media on the Internet. So she's also a champion. Of censorship. Of, 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 of yeah, of fighting against of fighting that. Yeah. yeah. So she has this book called Kiss of Fire, and one of the most memorable photos in that book is this scene where there are two uh, seemingly male um, partners, and uh, there's a bottom... And the camera is facing the bottom, and you see the bottom's face close up, and there's this grimace, this expression of pain on the bottom's face. And in the background, you see a top who's holding a whip, 
and the look on both their faces, especially the look on the top's face. So the bottom was in pain, but the look on the top's face just spoke something to me. This focus, and I, I, I simultaneously saw this focus and concern, you know, both like, you know, um, it's just such an intentful look, you know, I cannot do justice to that if you ever... Yeah. Get that book and thumb through it, you'll come across that floor. You're like, ah, oh, that must have been the one he's talking about. <laughs> but it's not like he's in pain and this one's laughing or grinning. It's like it was, it's just focus and intention in their movement and their action and, and their connection. Was, and, and and presence of both of them right. in that scene. Right. And the two things and, and, and you know, most of those photos are people in their moment versus mm-hmm. like saying cheese for the camera. And I'm <laughs> I'm a fan of that type of photography. Sure. And uh but th- there are two things from this photo that I think are common in kink that pe- but that perhaps are not seen one is uh, that focus that connection you could feel that connection between them and then the other is that concern spoke to me of something like love mm-hmm. you know that kink is not about that, that that kink happens for most people often it happens within the context of love yeah that makes great sense and I mean, it also, I know that I've been to a number of like dungeon parties or kink events or, you know, m- more of the party scenario where I look at people who like there's a, a man or dominant character, typically man, um, using some kind of impact implement and a woman on a cross or another, some other kind of, um, you know, bound scenario and there's something between them that feels bored. And that's that's always the moment that bothers me where I'm like, I think that there can be a performance of kink that's not a connected kink, and, and it goes that way also. It also, what we've talked about makes me think, just because it doesn't look like the way that I want to play or the way that that scene looks to me and I want to engage with does not mean that that connection isn't there and that there isn't something between that. Yeah. It's just my initial judgment. It's like, that seems boring. For me, slow down. Yeah, yeah. That's the uh, um, don't yuck my yum in terms of not kink shaming people or it's yuck yuck yum yum soup, and not uh, and understanding that whatever may be a turn on for me or how I like to play, uh, there are so many variants, so many various ways that it it, it can be done that could be the most rewarding and fulfilling scene for the people who are playing and just not for me. And kind of, I mean, in the same way, I'm sure that there have been a number of times that people have watched me play and they're just like, eh, I'm not into that. It's like, okay, you don't have to be because you're not the one doing it. Do the limitless <laughs> practice in the mirror. My philosophy is, you know, if people are playing in a dungeon, they are playing to have fun. They're not playing. It's not their obligation to entertain people who are watching. So if somebody is not getting off on watching that, hey, look somewhere else. Maybe you'll see something else that catches your eye. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about different ways kink happens. And we've got a lot of ground. Just a couple other points I'll throw in there, which is about masochism. And uh, just briefly, you can break masochism into most people associate it with, with pain. And within that, there are also other categories. And the question is, okay, so, you know, what we're talking about here is we talked about all these things. Now, how does this actually take form? What do people do? And with masochism, one key category is physical masochism. And within that, there are other categories. So like, for instance, impact is just one category. 
temperature play, playing with heat or cold is, is another category. So there are different ways that you can play with, with masochism, with physical sensation, with physical discomfort, or just simply sensation. Sometimes it's less about causing discomfort. It's more about just creating this ride and journey of different sensations. Yeah. I mean, I, or it can be, I mean, I've seen it done where, I mean, like tickle play. I mean, that's not physically painful, but it can become very painful because of how it may uh, be uh, perceived or received by uh, a bottom or a sub and where it can take them mentally or, you know, when you start to mix types of play to kind of achieve whatever the goal of that scene may be. Yeah, that's why sometimes it's called tickle torture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And, you know, I, when I took a human sexuality class, and I remember in there, one of the things we studied was sensate focus, mm-hmm. which was basically creating different sensations. I remember, like, reading that, like, oh, sensation play. We do that in kink. Yeah. Which also, yeah. I mean, to that degree, that's why uh, doing different types of uh, sensor, sensory deprivation can be such a unique type of play. Yep. Because by taking one sense away then it's forcing you to become much more in tune with the ones that are still available. So, you know, whether it's you're immobilized or blindfolded or, you know, have, you know, earplugs and uh, ear protection and so you can't hear. And there, uh, I mean, among many other ways that, you know, you can um, set it up, but it's uh, people who really enjoy that type of play. Uh, they, I mean, they, it's something that they do frequently. I mean, or, even uh, people I know who like it, it tends to not just be something they do occasionally. It used that type of play tends to be something they do pretty frequently because of uh, how it makes them feel and kind of what that experience is for them. Yeah. So, you know, that's just a little bit about physical SM. Physical SM is about getting some type of gratification from the masochist's point of view, getting some type of gratification from physical sensations, more commonly physical sensations that are thought to be uncomfortable. Uh, But somehow they translate to a happy feeling, a happy state of mind, or a state of mind that is, you know, kind of like bungee jumping, right? You might go through this process where while you're going through it, you're like, oh my gosh, but then at the end of it, you feel this, this happy feeling. Sure. You know, it may very well be like that. And that's a good segue into another type of masochism, which is emotional masochism or emotional SM, to describe it more descriptively, where both tops and bottoms engage in it. And so just like you have physical sensations that you might consider, uh, that, that you might think people would not want, but people do them to get some happy feeling out of it, you can have emotions that you might generally think people don't want but people do that because they get some kind of happy feeling out of it. And bungee jumping is a terrific example. I mean, there is, you know, you're playing with this feeling of anxiety and fear and your body responds to it. And, and, and you know, there are people not into kink who do that. The same thing applies for people in kink. They might go through things, through emotions, because at the end of it or during it, it makes them happy. And it can be fear play, it can be something else. It can be humiliation. You know, it can be mindfucks. It can be abandonment. Um, so that's another branch in in masochism. And uh, I think I'll leave it at that. We you know we can go into more detail, break this down more, but at a broad level, 
We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, again, this along with everything else that we've already talked about can all be, you know, and their own episodes. And, I mean, there's just so much depth and variety to anything that we've discussed that, uh, that certainly, whether it will be uh, continuations with UC or any of, other, any of our other guests, we will certainly be going more in depth around a lot of this. But I think that you know, this has been kind of a really good overview of, of so much of what King can BDSM and fetish can be. Right, yeah. So we talked a little bit about how SM happens here. And we can also talk a bit about how DS happens. And we can do a bit more of that here or save it for another time. And uh, Yeah, I mean, I would honestly with DS only because I know that, I mean, we've been present for when you talked about that a lot more in depth. I think that um, from the high level, you've kind of touched on it. But, I mean, I would love to have you be able to have uh, a much more or have us to have a much more in-depth conversation on that only because okay. I know good. that you are as, as knowledgeable and experienced as you are. So um, I would love to hold that for when you can speak sure. to it a little bit more length. Underground sea, pa-pum, pa-pum. That's your segment. <laughs> Break. Underground sea. <laughs> Darling, it's better. He makes it wetter. Definitely. Pa-pum, pa-pum. Nailed it. Can you send me a clip of this? I'd like to make this my jingle. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> got yeah. you. Yeah. Well, we'll you didn't think I was coming back. I got you. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, C. This has been uh, a, a great way to uh, get kind of a, a baseline for a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about on the show going forward. And we uh, absolutely Look forward to having you back on to talk more in depth about so many of these topics and a million others that we know that you know tons about. And uh, we look forward to having you back soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this really interesting conversation and also just for your effort and initiative to help promote the knowledge and awareness about something that might be really important part of people and, you know, where there's not a lot of information out there. And thank you for being part of the effort to make that more available. Absolutely. Certainly. And thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. Like I said before, I just like, I'm a giddy, giddy mess at that point. I'm like, oh, high level. I like you and I love your knowledge and your brain's like, mm. and then low level, like I love you like a close friend. So thank you. All right. <laughs> All right. Until next time, consentors. Uh, remember that consent is sexy as fuck. So keep it up out there and we will, you will hear from us soon. For additional show information, including related articles, links, and social media, check out consentences.com.